Let us now turn for our scripture reading and our text this morning to the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 8, and we'll read the first 17 verses. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, Will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who have been hearing in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. For before these days there were no wages for man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. And it shall come to pass that just as you are a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we remove, resume our consideration of this book of Zechariah, I would remind you that uh, the great theme of this prophecy is a message of hope for God's people. For God's people, particularly in this context, who were restored from captivity, who had been for 70 plus years in Babylon, and they had been returned to uh, their homeland. But we also know that that return did not mean the end of their troubles. They were called to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city, and they faced a great deal of opposition. They faced enemies from without who opposed their work. You might say they 
oppose their very identity or existence as the people of God. You can read about that in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. But worst of all, uh, more serious than these outward threats to their safety and well-being, uh, they face themselves. And that's important for us to appreciate. Because our biggest problems in life, our biggest problems when it comes to our, our true well-being, our spiritual well-being, is not from circumstances. It's not from people. If we think that, we're always wishing and hoping that things would change and imagining to ourselves, if only, if only I were married, I could serve the Lord better. If only I were single again, I could serve the Lord better. If only I had that different job. If only I weren't so busy. If I could regain my health, then I would be able to uh, worship and serve the Lord. But in these circumstances, and, and we could fill in the blanks because we're, we're prone to uh, judge of our circumstances and make of them reasons or excuses in our own minds for a lack of spiritual vibrancy or growth. And so it is of great practical importance to know that our biggest problems are never our circumstances or the people around us. It's ourselves. It's our sin. It's our doubts. It's our unbelief. It's our worldliness. And so the question that we constantly face, really, is this. Is God's grace and God's power sufficient to address these things? He is the Lord of hosts. You notice how often that title is repeated. Again and again throughout this book, throughout this reading. It reminds us that the Lord indeed is the God of armies. He is the one who rules supreme. He is the one who rules the angels and all the powers of this world. Infinite in might. And he's the Lord. That's this, this covenant name of God. Who is a faithful God. Who is a shepherd to us. He's not only almighty, but he's near to us as a shepherd who cares for his sheep. And God reminds his people again and again of who he is and who he is in relationship to them. He is the one who restores us. He is the one who restores our souls, as Psalm 23 says. Our text this morning really is at the heart of this book, and it's at the heart of the message of this book. It's message of hope. And that hope is found in the Lord's assurance of restoration. We might say spiritual restoration. That's necessary for us to understand the nature of this rich grace that the Lord reveals and assures his people. If you recall, this message of restoration uh, began, at least following those initial visions that were given in the book of Zechariah, it began in the last chapter as the Lord responded to the question that was raised by a delegation that came to the temple asking, shall we continue to fast? As we did, referring to the days of captivity in Babylon where they, they fasted on the fifth month and actually on the fourth month and on the seventh month as well as an expression of humility. And the Lord responded to this question in a way that shows 
that the issue is far greater than their observance of certain rites, even of fasting. That can simply become a formal exercise. That can be performed with the idea that somehow we're uh, paying God off or we can obtain his favor by doing this or by doing that. And God's response went far deeper than a simple yes or no answer to their question. And we, we, we heard that, uh, the pathway to spiritual restoration also involved in repentance. Repentance from a selfish kind of formalism that had marked even the religious observations of these people. The Lord is concerned with spiritual restoration. But we have to define that too a bit, because we might mistakenly think that while spiritual restoration, that only pertains to our inner life. That's only concerned with what's going on within. And it has no relationship, it has no effect upon home life. It has no effect upon upon uh, issues of of physical well-being or security or or health or such blessings. Well, we will see that God's restoration was not simply concerned with some private inner spiritual um, renewal that had no influence upon one's environment and community. But the point is that Israel's restoration was far more than political independence. It was far more than uh, outward peace or tranquility. It was far more than than prosperity or outward considerations. But it meant life with God. It meant life in fellowship with God. A life of faith and a life of worship. A life of love for God and love for one's neighbor. And we cannot think of any kind of well-being apart from that. It begins with a spiritual renewal in relationship to God. So in this second message about God's assurance of restoration, we, we hear from our text that the heart of our hope is the covenant mercy of the Lord. Our text is all about God's covenant faithfulness and mercy. And we begin by considering the Lord's amazing grace. The intensity of God's care is amazing. We hear it in the opening words of this chapter where uh, the Lord of hosts says, as the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah, it marks a new uh, prophecy, and that word of the Lord is, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. Zealous, jealous, it's as if the Lord burns for the well-being of his people. Now, remember, we heard this expression early on in the book, in, in chapter 1, where in verse 14, the Lord said, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. In other words, the Lord is jealous. He, he is zealous. He burns for her well-being. Now, sometimes this word zealous or jealous is used to describe uh, God's jealousy for the consecration of his people in such a way that also involves his displeasure and anger when his people are unfaithful to him. But in this passage, we're not, we're not to think of uh, the anger of a husband at the unfaithfulness of his wife. 
but we're to think of the passion of a husband who seeks the well-being, the love, the good of his wife. We are to think of the gracious, condescending zeal of the Holy Spirit, whom James says dwells in us. The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The Holy Spirit is zealous for our our sanctification, our consecration to God, our spiritual life and well-being. And so this zeal proclaims the Lord's love for His people. His profound concern for them. He'll do everything to save her. He will reveal his gracious, saving presence. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Now we know that God had never forsaken his people completely, altogether. Yes, he removed them from the promised land. And he removed them in his discipline and judgment, from the manifestation of his presence with them, which was centered in the temple. And the temple was destroyed. But God never abandoned them altogether. He showed his presence in grace yet to the captives. He didn't altogether take his word away from them. There were prophets. Ezekiel prophesied in the years of captivity. But now God not only returned them to the land, but he returned to them in mercy, in sanctifying grace. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. I will secure the reputation of my people as a holy people. Well, how is the Lord going to do that? Well, there's only one way in which the Lord does that. And that's by his gracious presence, by the manifestation of his power and mercy among them. God's presence with his people must make them holy. And a revived church is always a church that's, that's marked by truth. A love for the truth, for God's sake. A zeal to believe it and a zeal to to practice it as before God. That's what God's presence does among his people. That's how he sanctifies his people, as we'll also hear tonight. God promises that he would return to them in mercy and grace, in a grace that would also transform them. The Lord will display his covenant faithfulness. Now, what does that mean? What's really at the, at the heart? What's at the core of God's covenant mercy and faithfulness to his people? Well, actually, we hear it uh, in this passage in verse 8, which concludes with this very familiar language. If you know the Bible, you know that this is language that is repeated again and again, where it says, they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. That's That was God's promise to Abraham when he established his covenant with him. I will be a God to you and to your descendants, to your seed after you. It's repeated again and again. We come to the book of Revelation. The promise of God dwelling in the midst of his people. 
wiping tears from all eyes. And we hear this promise again, even given in a very individual way. I will be his God. He shall be my son. You see, there's nothing greater than to know God, to know him as near to us, to know him as our God, to know ourselves as his people, as that which is most fundamental, most important to our identity in this world. Our only comfort in life, in death, is to belong, to belong to God, our Savior. And that's what he promises here. From Genesis to Revelation, from Abraham to us and to our children, the promises to you and to your children, this promise of God's saving mercy. And it means bringing, bringing sinners out of the world. Thus says the Lord, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. Using those polar opposites, the extreme dimensions, from anywhere, from everywhere, I will gather my people. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people. I will be their God. Yes, that had a literal, historical, geographical fulfillment. But even that is typical, isn't it? It points to the fact that Christ will call his sheep from throughout the world. They hear his voice. They're gathered. They're called out. They're the church. They're gathered into his home. They're gathered into his church. They're, they're made citizens of his holy city. His grace brings them to himself brings them to the midst of his people among whom he dwells in mercy and grace. And that grace is displayed here in its description. It means, it means security. It, it means, it means peace. Again, this passage uses this, this kind of imagery that, that we can relate to where it says such things as Thus says the Lord in verse 4, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. Yes, there is a connection between longevity and God's goodness and favor. Children, obey your parents that uh, it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. That's in the New Testament, by the way. Yesterday I was able to visit... Uh, Four elderly people in the Emmanuel home. And as I left, or I think it was at the last visit, it occurred to me that every one of them was in their 90s. One of them just uh, one year short of a 100. And yes, they had their walkers, but their walkers were testimony to God's faithfulness and grace to them and that they were still able to get around. And, and even more importantly, how their lives and their witness bore testimony to God's faithfulness and grace over so many years. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I remember as a kid, we lived in a very safe place. We lived in a town where us kids would go out in the summertime in the morning and sometimes be gone all day. Mom and Dad didn't know where we were. They didn't really worry about us. Because the city was safe. They wanted us to be home for lunch and for supper. But we basically had run of the town. 
And it's also a place where there was a Reformed or a Christian Reformed church within walking distance of almost everyone who lived there. In fact, we knew the people in our neighborhood who didn't go to church. Really? Now, there's a correlation between that kind of culture and safety and security and freedom. Well, that doesn't mean that everyone was Christian, but the fruits and the evidence of God's Word and its impact upon a culture were evident. And that's kind of a picture here. Picture of security. Security. Old people, happy children. Now, we might read this and say, well, that sounds so idyllic. And uh, actually, Pastor, if you knew what was going on in my life, you knew the problems in my family, my health, my marriage, my mental state, this sounds so unrealistically optimistic and hopeful. It's for others, and not for myself, perhaps. Well, the Lord also says to his people, don't judge such wondrous grace by your own ideas. Don't evaluate things in terms of what seems possible and credible by human wisdom. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days. In other words, if this just sounds too good to be true, quite impossible, wonderful beyond belief, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? Is there anything too hard for God? God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And God wants us to cling and hold fast to that conviction with a kind of determination, despite circumstances. Again, not that we look for these outward uh, circumstances that I described as if that's an infallible uh, result of God's favor and blessing. I'm going to live to be 95 and uh, all those kinds of things. Not so, that's not the point. But God calls us to a determined faith in his sufficiency, a grace that is sufficient for us in our current circumstance and need. He wants us to sing amazing grace, not simply in terms of uh, the past. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yes, a wonderful story of conversion. I once was blind. I once was lost. Now I'm found. Now I see. And you get the impression that yeah, here's somebody whose life was messed up, but now he's saved and everything has changed. But what about amazing grace that saves a wretch like me? Today, where I still have so much blindness and sometimes feel so lost, and who will save me? Yes. God wants to cling to him with that determined faith that hopes against hope that seems to hope against every kind of reasonable expectation, like Abraham's faith, who gave glory to God, who did not waver in, at the promise through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. His faith was continually renewed and strengthened as he clung to God's promises. And that's what God calls us to do. The Lord gives that faith that overcomes the world, believing in what he said. And that leads us to consider, secondly, uh, as a result of this amazing grace, the Lord's assured blessing 
Yes, biblical hope is honest. It's honest about the present distress. In verse 10, we read, Before these days there were no wages for man or any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or who came in. For I said all men, every one against his neighbor. Here's a description of economic shutdown. Here's a description of economic depression, of unemployment, of unproductivity. In fact, we read of that in the opening chapter of Haggai, where we read, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. You looked for much, but it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Yes, they were neglecting the, the, the worship of God. They were neglecting the house of God. But there was a correlation between the troubles that they faced. They faced dangers from enemies. It's described here in terms of the restriction of travel, the restriction of movement where it's not safe to go out in the streets. And perhaps worst of all, a description of internal strife. For I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. And that's a, a description not simply of trouble from outsiders. That's a description of the sad conflict that characterized the people of God, who had become marked by quarreling, who had become marked by strife, by suspicions and jealousies and judgments one of another, speaking evil of one another. You know, the remarkable thing in this passage is that it's presented as God's doing. I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. See, there's this element of God's sovereignty at work in this situation that's described here. Now, that is an exempt people from their responsibility and their accountability for their role in this quarreling, for their role in this judgment of others. But the fact is that even this was a manifestation of God's displeasure in a situation that calls everyone to repentance. Because this is the shape sometimes of, of God's covenant curse. I sometimes think that really is the most godly and proper response that God has called us to in the past years uh, when the circumstances indeed gave rise to uh, quarreling and disputes and judgments and suspicions and divisions in the church. And perhaps most important for God's people in such circumstances is to hear the voice of the Lord saying, all of you humble yourself before me. All of you repent. All of you seek my mercy and my grace, the restoration of love, the power of the Spirit manifested among you. That's the circumstance in which God promises blessing. This is the situation in which he comes with grace, reminding us that God is a God of gracious change. Not that he changes. I am the Lord. I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. But God is the one who brings about change. God is the one who reverses uh, circumstances, often with a great reversal, 
But now, we read in verse 11, I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, said the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. Look at Deuteronomy 28. We don't have the time to look at it, but, but look at it as it describes blessing and cursing. And now in a situation where God's people had indeed suffered his discipline and correction, well-deserved judgment, God comes in sovereign grace and mercy and promises a great reversal, promises blessing instead of cursing. He will make them a blessing. Verse uh, uh, 13 and following, It shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Verse 14, as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again in these days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Sovereign mercy and grace that God gives to his people. The Lord will keep his word. The word that had been spoken by the prophets, God reminded of them of that in verse 9. Let your hands be strong. You have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets. Haggai and Zechariah had spoken of the rebuilding of the temple. And they were to believe that. And believing in God's word, they were to take action. Twice we read, let your hands be strong. Twice we read, do not fear. And these things, they, they go together, don't they? These exhortations are very, very uh, closely related. All we have to do is ask, what does fear and anxiety do to us in our lives? Well, it paralyzes us. It makes us inactive. Sometimes literally, we're afraid to go out. And it hinders our ability to act. Let your hands be strong, the Lord says. Interestingly, uh, it doesn't say let your hearts be strong. Of course, strong hands in terms of activity is the result of a strengthened heart. But you know, sometimes we can, we can make a mistake here and we think, well, when I really feel strong inside, then I'll be ready to take action. When actually the Lord calls us to prove his sufficiency often by doing what he says, despite how we feel, and trusting that he will show his, his sufficient grace. That's what he's doing to these people here. He says, let your hands be strong. In other words, what? Get to work, people. Build this temple. Don't let fear, don't let your circumstances paralyze you. Take action. Experiment. Prove God's sufficiency. Step out. Step up. Take one little step. And you might find that in the doing, that in obedience to God's word and his will, that you find the strength to take another. Oh, that doesn't mean you'll live up to your ideals and your expectations. None of us do. But we're to live by faith and trust in God, that we may indeed prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How? 
by offering up ourselves as living sacrifices to him. This is your reasonable service. And God is calling his people here to indeed show that they believe that his grace is sufficient. And God calls us to do that. He calls us to do what his word tells us to do. He calls us to do what our consciences tell us that we want to do and that we ought to do. And God calls us to do exactly what our fears and anxieties sometimes say. You can't do it. Well, you can't. That's right. That's why we need divine help and power. But God promises these things. And believing his word, he calls us to prove his sufficiency. To take steps in the right direction. And don't let fear paralyze us from acting in humble faith. And he will show that, yes, he strengthens us. His grace is sufficient. And that leads us finally to consider uh, the Lord's arousing, I could say, activating goodness. You see, our text is really all about God's covenant mercy. That is God's mercy revealed in a relationship. God sovereignly and graciously enters into a relationship with needy sinners, with Israel, with you and I. And these precious promises that we consider this morning are all assured in Christ because he is the mediator of the covenant. He shed his blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant. And in him, God bestows the saving grace of forgiveness of sins and restoration and life to all who simply come to him in their need and believe. Believe in him, the one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's covenant grace and favor just by receiving him in faith. And you see, it's in Christ. It's in him in view of this abounding grace that we can also hear God's calling in our lives. We can hear what are sometimes referred to as uh the obligations of the covenant, right? Because in every covenant there are two parts. God promises, God promises, God promises. But therefore we are also obliged to respond to God's promises, to cling to him, to love him, to serve him. The Lord's goodness arouses thankful living. And God wants us to hear that also in this word of hope, in which he sets out the path of restoration by amazing grace, by his assured blessing. It's grace and it's blessing that arouses people to live like his people. But that's how our text concludes, really, isn't it? When you hear uh, verse uh, 16 and 17, it says, These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. In effect, the Lord is saying, as we hear in the, in the epistle of John, my brothers and sisters, little children, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Yes, that's uh, the practical outworking of the 
knowledge and the reception of such grace that's given to us as his people. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So on the base of of this wondrous grace, take comfort, take hope, take strength, and also exhibit that strength in your relationships to one another, in your homes, in your church, on your job. That loving God who so loved us, we might also learn more and more to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen.